0: Good morning everyone, Um, I'm going to be sharing a talk today, as you can see, um, titled Thoughts on Thomas, Toppling Towers, and Touching Jesus. This is a sermon for Ascension Sunday. I last spoke on Easter Sunday, which is quite some time ago now. Did you know that in the church calendar we are still observing the season of Easter? Easter. It is the seventh Sunday of Easter. The last one next Sunday is Pentecost. And this week marked the Ascension just a few days ago, actually. So happy belated Ascension Day to all of you. And here's an Ascension Sunday confession from a new pastor. The tide storyline sure is hard work for my little mind and heart. It is much easier for me to believe in the crucifixion than the resurrection, for example. But then the whole ascension tale comes up and basically puts me over the edge. It's a good thing my ability to believe in things has little to do with it. But seriously, listen to how the ascension is described in the Gospel of Luke. The text reads, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Now I'm familiar with this story, so it's not a shock to me, but if I let myself think about it in the literal sense for very long, I become troubled." Because Jesus just floated up into the sky and the disciples turned around, went back to Jerusalem with great joy, and continued blessing God in the temple? The practical part of myself wants to know so much more about how this went down. Like, I'm sorry, but where did Jesus go? Did he just float up into the sky like some life-size Jesus balloon, slowly getting smaller and smaller until no one could see him anymore? Or did he gradually fade away into the air like some sort of ghost or magician? According to the Gospels, that's exactly what seems to have occurred, and every year we just roll with it. I used to try to force myself to ignore these questions about the story of Christianity because they scared me, to be honest. And sometimes I still have that tendency. Because what if making space for that question, what if removing that particular block of belief makes the whole Jenga tower of faith topple over on us? I know some of us have experienced a crash or two or three like that. Makes me think that we should probably stop building towers. Hey, there's a little more to that fear in me though. And I want to talk a bit about that today because that tendency to protect the structure of a life or a faith we've loved or felt safe within makes good sense. I understand where my hesitation comes from. On the second Sunday of Easter, we read about Thomas, who ends up being typecast as a doubter from here on out. A quick Google search of doubting Thomas will bring up all kinds of interpretations of what we're meant to learn from his story. Most of them have undertones of shame. Shame on Thomas, for whom seeing wasn't enough. But I've always loved Thomas, because like Thomas, who needed to touch the body of Christ to know he was real, I too want to touch and experience the truth of God for myself. And deeper than my desire to protect certain structures of my life, I know that what I want and long for more than that is Jesus to be real love to be real. Not a not an illusion or a myth or a fantasy I've hoped for, but really, really, really real. It's telling to me that Thomas gets to touch and feel and know the truth because he dares to question it. And who knows why Thomas needed that more than his friends. But Jesus doesn't seem to mind it. Maybe Jesus even understands. I came across this poem recently and loved it. It's called, I Feel Sorry for Jesus. And it's written by Naomi Shihab Nye. I'm going to read it to us. I feel sorry for Jesus. People won't leave him alone. I know he said wherever two or more are gathered in my name, but I'll bet some days he regrets it. Cozily, they tell you what he wants and doesn't want as if they just got an email. Remember telephone, that pass it on game where the message changes dramatically by the time it rounded the circle? Well, people blame terrible pieties on Jesus. They want to be his special pet, Jesus deserves better. I think he's been exhausted for a very long time. He went into the desert, friends. He didn't go into the pomp. He didn't go into the golden chandeliers and say the truth tastes better here. See, I'm talking like I know. It's dangerous talking for Jesus. You get carried away almost immediately. I stood in the spot where he was born. I closed my eyes where he died and didn't die. Every twist of the Via Dolorosa was written on my skin. And that makes me feel like being silent for him, you know? A secret pouch of listening. You won't hear me mention this again. Seems like a very good poem for preachers and teachers to be familiar with, don't you think? People blame terrible pieties on Jesus, it's true. And those pieties sink into a person over time and somehow we start to collude with and inflict those damaging beliefs onto ourselves in ways that are incredibly difficult to rewire. So. I too want to be silent for him, a secret pouch of listening, but here I am speaking. So I hope to speak carefully. Thomas needed to touch his hands in his side, and it makes me wonder what you need. I know this can be a difficult question to ask ask ourselves. It takes courage and vulnerability to express a need and it can be painful. But I'd like to invite you to close your eyes if you'd like. Take a deep breath and consider what it is you need. It is okay, of course, if nothing comes to mind. But if something is there, just notice it. Give it a little loving attention. Hello, need. I see you there. One more breath. Now open your eyes. I know that in my life, I've needed love to come to me in a different way than some of my friends did. To my younger self, the story of a God who leaves to prepare a place for me, disappears into the sky, and promises to return was not unlike parental abandonment which was my lived experience. I grew up with the narrative that my mom who suffered from addiction would come back to get me when she was better. But my mom never got better and Jesus has been preparing a place in his father's house for over 2000 years and counting. So I had a few questions. I don't think I'm all that different from the disciples. My doubts and questions grew from the soil of my life. They are a mix of my genetic makeup, maybe, my lived experience, and the worldviews and religious understandings I inherited. Reflecting on the ascension narrative as it's presented in Acts, minister and theologian Robert Cornwell writes this quote, when they arrived at the designated spot, Jesus gathered the disciples together for one last conversation. These disciples aren't the most patient of people, and so they began asking Jesus a question that had been on their minds since the first day they each met him Is this the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples are overjoyed that Jesus has risen from the dead. But what good is the resurrection? if Jesus doesn't make Israel great again. They still can't get that nationalist vision out of their minds. But Jesus responds to their question by simply telling them, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, this is not your concern. This isn't your mission and purpose. The disciples had a vision they had a plan for Jesus to implement. Unfortunately for them, Jesus had a different plan. They were nationalists who wanted Jesus to restore Israel's greatness. But as theologian Willie Jennings writes, this nationalist desire has tempted Israel from the beginning and in fact tempts all peoples. The nationalism suggested here is not a historical nationalism bound to the anatomy of Israel, but the deeply human desire of every people to control their destiny and shape the world into their hoped for eternal image. That vision is understandable, but it's not Jesus' vision. He didn't offer them a nationalist king- kingdom vision. Instead, he offered them an inclusive vision of God's realm that would extend to the ends of the earth." End quote. I want to read that quote by William Jennings again. Nationalist desire has tempted Israel from the beginning and in fact, tempts all peoples. The nationalism suggested here is not a historical nationalism bound to the anatomy of Israel, but the deeply human desire of every people to control their destiny and shape the world into their hoped for eternal image. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that one idea, and I'm not going to attempt to do much of it. But in keeping with my trajectory of thought, I will say that I can see how my own impulse to control my destiny and shape my world into my hoped-for eternal image limits the possibilities love would offer. My friend Bradley Jerzak says, God doesn't do control, which is to say, love doesn't do control. And love can't, which is to say, God can't. Let me tell you, as a parent, This helps me understand how deeply God must grieve. God doesn't do control. God will not determine you is another way to say it, but surely God must grieve. I have an ideal version of life and the life I've hoped to give my children and my attachment to that ideal often keeps me from accepting reality. And it also keeps me trapped in a loop of pain and regret and shame and guilt for everything that isn't right. I bet God doesn't do blame either. Elaine Pagels writes, quote, guilt is the price we pay for the illusion that we have some control over nature and many of us are willing to pay it, end quote. I think that hanging on to that illusion of control also keeps me from being able to experience the one thing I said I want and long to know most deeply. That love is really, really, really real. And is not contingent on my ability to hang on to anything at all. I can let go. I can ask the questions. I can express the need. I can be honest about the things that hurt and the things that don't work. I can move or remove the blocks that need moving and removing. I can let the tower fall. Like Thomas, I think my own questions have led me closer to God and to love than any dogmas or doctrines ever have. And when I've allowed those questions the space to breathe as scary and disorienting as it can be for towers to come crashing down inside yourself. It's like they've cleared a place within me that makes encounters with mystery possible. Love descending and ascending within me. In fact, when I take a deep breath, and release myself momentarily from the fears that bind me. I know I have discovered love and freedom and peace and security every time I stop forcing my faith and myself into any particular shape and simply allow my life to be what it is. Radical acceptance of reality. That takes courage, my friends. This quote has been referred to a few times this year, but I couldn't miss connecting it here. In letters to a young poet, Rainer Maria Rilke writes, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. My heart still has a lot of questions about Jesus and reality and love and belonging, just to name a few. Some questions I've been afraid of and have avoided for a long time. So it makes sense to me that the first step is to love the question itself, whatever it is. The question is full of possibility and it takes courage to let those questions surface and then give them room to breathe. I think Thomas is onto something when he honors the question within him by asking to touch the body of Christ. This is the same Thomas who later writes in his Gospel quote, If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. End quote. Elaine Pagels explains that, quote, Thomas's gospel encourages the hearer not so much to believe in Jesus, as John requires, as to seek to know God through one's own divinely given capacity, since all are created in the image of God. So, to sum it all up, (laughs) love your questions, my friends. Notice what you need. Bring forth everything that's within you. And let whatever structures you're working so hard to stabilize and support topple if they must. And you might touch love. Amen.